Good morning. Today there will be two readings. The first is 1 Kings chapter 4. So King Solomon ruled over all Israel, and these were his chief officials. Azariah, son of Zadok, the priest. Eli Horeth and Ahijah, sons of Shisha, secretaries. Jehoshaphat, son of Ahilud, recorder. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, commander-in-chief. Zadok and Abitha, priests. Azariah, son of Nathan, in charge of the district officers. Zabud, son of Nathan, a priest and personal advisor to the king. Ahisha, in charge of the palace. Adoniram, son of Abda, in charge of forced labor. Solomon also had 12 district governors over all Israel who supplied provisions for the king and the royal household. Each one had to provide supplies for one month of the year. These are their names. Ben-Hur in the hill country of Ephraim. Ben-Dika in Mekaz, Shealbim. Beth-Shemesh and Elon, Bethanan. Ben-Hesed in Arabeth, Soko, and all the land of Hepha were his. Ben-Abinadab in Napheth Dor. He was now married to Tapheth, daughter of Solomon. Beana, son of Ahilud, in Teana and Megiddo, and in all of Bethshan next to Zarathan, below Jezreel, from Bethshan to Abel-Mahola, across to Jokmiam. Benjima in Ramoth-Gilead, the settlements of Jair, son of Manasseh, in Gilead were his, as well as the districts of Argon in Bashan and its 60 large walled cities with bronze gate bars. Ahinadab, son of Ido, in Mahanaim, Ahiah, in Naphtali, he had married Basimath, daughter of Solomon. Bayana, son of Hushai, in Asher and in Aloth. Jehoshaphat, son of Parua, in Issachar. Shimei, son of Elah, in Benjamin. Jeba, son of Uri, in Gilead, the country of Sion, king of the Amorites, and the country of Og, king of Bashan. He was the only governor over the district. The people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They ate, they drank, and they were happy. And Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines, as far as the border of Egypt. These countries brought tributes and were Solomon's subjects all his life. Solomon's daily provisions were 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 head of stall-fed cattle, 20 of pasture-fed cattle, and 100 sheep and goats, as well as deer, gazelles, roebucks, and choice fowl. For he ruled over all the kingdoms west of the river, from Tifsha to Gaza, and had peace on all sides. During Solomon's lifetime, Judah and Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, lived in safety, each man under his own vine and fig tree. Solomon had 4,000 stalls of chariot horses and 12,000 horses. The district officers, each in his month, supplied provisions for King Solomon and all who came to the king's table. They saw to it that nothing was lacking. They also brought to the proper place their quotas of barley and straw for the chariot horses and the other horses. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the men of the east and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than any other man, including Ethan the Ezrahite, wiser than Heman, Calcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahol. 
and his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs numbered 1,005. He described plant life from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of walls. He also taught about animals and birds, reptiles and fish. Men of all nations came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. Our second reading this morning is taken from Revelation chapter 21, starting at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And carrying on from verse 22 over the page. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. This is God's Word. Well, good morning. My name is Matt Fuller, if uh, we've not met. Didn't you... Okay, we are actually mainly looking at uh, 1 Kings 4. Yes, perhaps not the most obvious of uh, truths as we first look at it, so why don't we pray? Why don't we pray that the Lord will give us some help as we look at this together? Almighty God, you're a loving father who gives his children what they need and you don't waste your breath, you don't waste your words. So as we come to look at this at first glance, dare we say, dull part of the Bible, would you help us understand it rightly? Would it move us to obedience? Would it move us to delight in our King, the Lord Jesus Christ? We pray in his name. Amen. Now, once you're above a certain age, I don't know what it is, it might be 14, it might be 18, I don't know, but once you're above a certain age, visiting stately homes is, is a delight. It's boring when you're young, but uh, there comes a point where you realise how wonderful they are, and if you're from overseas and you come to England, you realise, golly, it's so much history, and uh, we love looking around stately homes, but you can visit a grand sort of palace, and uh, I don't know, it's all 19th century construction, you can visit Buckingham Palace in the summer months. You go overseas, you can visit Versailles, and they're magnificent. I mean, in modern terms, there's a lot of bling on the walls. I mean, they're just thousands spent, millions spent on decorating these sort of palaces, and they're all very impressive. And you think, golly, how extraordinary to have lived in a place such as this. But of course, most of them, there's a slightly underside to them, because most of them are constructed for the vanity of the monarch 
and constructed on the poverty of those they ruled over. Forced labor or pennies paid to construct these vast vanity projects for the glory of the monarch. And so even though it's very impressive, very wonderful, there's just a little part of you thinks, yeah, it's probably not right, is it really, that it should be here like this? And you know, maybe that's just me, but you know, when I go around these sort of places, it feels a bit like that. A little while ago, I visited Greenwich, and it's just a bit different there. It's lovely. Well, it's lovely generally, isn't it? But the Naval College in Greenwich, a magnificent set of buildings, But King William, Queen Mary, in 1694, constructed it, not for their own glory, but as a hospital for seamen, a hospital for those who had served their country but were unable to do so anymore. And they did so at incredible expense. And so the, 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 painted, ball, uh, the painted dining room, the painted hall, was deemed the finest dining room in the whole of the Western world. And it wasn't built for the king or the queen. It was built for invalids. And there's something very lovely about that, that this money had been lavished, not on a vanity project, but on those, well, in many ways you'd say, who are deserving. The least. There's something very lovely about it. It's a joyful thing when a monarch uses their plenty for the good, not of themselves, but for the good of well, the people they rule over. That's a good thing. It's a noble thing. And that's really what we get to see in 1 Kings chapter 4. Solomon is using the wonderful wisdom that God has given him, not for his own glory, but to serve his people. He uses his plenty for the good of those he rules over. And the outcome is, well, it's lovely again. If you are joining us today, we're uh, spending a few weeks in this uh, 1 Kings chapters 1 to 11, the life of uh, Solomon uh, in those chapters. And he's a mixed bag, his fickle faith. He does well, he does badly. But uh, here it's a, it's a good chapter in his reign. And we've been saying it week, every week, there's sort of two ways to look at Solomon and, and both are valid. The first is there's much to learn about wisdom, uh, about how to exercise wisdom. Solomon is a wise man. And there's much you can learn about how to handle the complexities of life competently from a wise man. So there's things that you and I can learn directly. There's one or two of those today. And yet we have to recognize also Solomon is unique. Uh, Even in the reading we had today, chapter 4, verse 31, Solomon was wiser than any other man. Now, I think by definition that does make him unique. Because you and I can't say that. Or we could. We might be accused of being a little arrogant. Wiser than any other man. And if you wanted to compete with Solomon, he's, I mean, his CV's not bad, is it? So verse 32 of chapter 4. He knocks out a few proverbs. More than one EP he produced in his time. With a thousand and five songs. Plant life, animal life. So he's a philosopher. He's a poet. He's a botanist. He's a zoologist. And you read this list and you think... Well, if you're slightly competitive, you think, well, was he good at sport? Doesn't mention that. Could he kick a ball? I don't know, but I know that. But he's clearly, I mean, the, the, the thing that's emphasized is his uniqueness as a wise man. And in that, the Bible holds him up as uh, a picture of Jesus Christ. He is in the Old Testament a hint, a shadow of what Jesus would be in fullness. 
So twice in the New Testament, Matthew 12, Luke 11, Jesus would say, I am the one who is greater than Solomon. He pointed towards me. And so I think when you come to this chapter, chapter four, yes, on the one hand, there are things that you and I can learn directly about wisdom and wise administration. That's good to do. But primarily, you probably say, here is a chapter which points us to how good it is to live under the kingship of Jesus Christ. It's so good being a citizen of him and his kingdom. It's very wonderful. I've lost an outline, but hopefully uh, we'll work through it. Uh, Three things. Uh, Wisdom is practical. Wisdom is joyful. And uh, wisdom will be compelling. I think that's where we're going. Three little things. Let's look at it this way. First then, uh, wisdom is practical, which is uh, verses 1 to 20 of chapter 4. Wisdom is practical. Now, what is going on here? Chapter 4, verse 1. King Solomon ruled over Israel. Good. And then... Oh, and then... It's slightly like the closing credits of a film, isn't it, as it scrolls past, you know, and here is the fourth associate producer and the best boy, what does he do, no idea, and the third grip, what does he do, does he look after the dolly grip, I'm not even sure what these things mean, but you know, the whole list sort of scrolls by and you think, I'm not staying for this, and you walk out, of course you do, because it's dull. So why is this here, this list of names and what they did? Well... I think there are at least a couple of reasons it's recorded. Here's the, the, the minor one in one sense. Uh, there, there's just great blessing to administration. I think that's what it's telling us. It's really useful to be in a well-administered place when occasionally you'll travel overseas to a country whose infrastructure is less developed. For a little while, it's quite endearing and fun, and after a while, it's annoying, quite frankly. Actually, wise administration is a great blessing. So verses 2 to 6, here's the cabinet, the most senior officials. If you've been here over the last few weeks, there are one or two surprising names. So verse 4, Abiathar's still there in the cabinet. If you remember, he supported a coup against Solomon, but he's been brought back in from the cold, and there may be something in that. The Solomon sets up his officials, and there's a mixture of the new and the old. He doesn't just go for his own cronies, brings in those with experience. Maybe something in that to learn. Then 7 to 19, you get the regional officials, all who provide food for the king for one month of the year. So there's a plan. The point is, just wisdom is very practical, you know. Verse 1, Solomon rules. Verses 2 to 19, here's how he did it. Verse 20 is the outcome. The people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They ate, they drank, and were happy. That's good. Those are three of my favorite things. Eating, drinking, being happy. That's a good night out right there. But that is how they lived in this kingdom. He ruled. Here's how he did it. Here's the outcome. That's what's being said here. God gave them a good land, a good place to live at this time. But the resources do need stewarding. Crops don't just appear magically. It needs to be looked after and well administered. Good administration, attentions to details, it's needed for a community to flourish. And you think, yes, so what? Because lots of secular businesses know that, of course they do, and invest vast sums in their HR and getting the right people. Of course you need wise administration. So for, for us as a church, so what? Well, it's at least a couple of things. First would be 
well, I'd want to express thankfulness for a helpful administrative team at church who are dedicated and shrewd and do things well. In one sense, here is a sermon in honor of the administrators uh, amongst us. Not dissimilarly, for, the, for those who labor away as whatever it may be, elders and deacons who bring practical wisdom, it's needed. This sort of section, it, it stops Christians operating in a rarefied spiritual vacuum, a sort of super pious, we just cross our legs and pray and everything happens. No, 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 wisdom is essential. Wisdom in small tasks of small tasks of daily life produces flourishing. And so we need creative ideas and, and visions and all those things, but you need sometimes the cold, hard voice of realism as well to sort things out. You need all these, of course you do, of course you do. There's great blessing to administration. It's part of the reason it's here. But there's a second reason, I think, still thinking of uh, of uh, the practicality of wisdom. Here then is just an a record of the unremarkable. Or you might call it just a record of faithfulness. You know, the Bible quite likes lists of names. It's the only place, in numerous places, the Bible will just have a list of names that we read and, and our eyes glaze over. And it's, again, they are a bit like the closing credits of the film and none of us really care who the best boy is or who Miss Winslet's hairdresser is or who waxed Tom Cruise's eyebrows or who was the third grip. But none of us really care unless you were that person, in which case it's quite gratifying to see your name. And your mum might go and visit the film and see it just to see your name go up afterwards. She might go and see a Marvel film, just not for the film. Oh, there's my son's name, whatever it may be. You, know, you only care about that if you're in it, really, don't you? And I think there's something of that here. Verses 7 to 19 are not famous people in the Bible. Well, you've got Ben-Hur. I know you've got Ben-Hur, but that's not the Ben-Hur. That's not Charlton Haston on a chariot. Ignore that. It's a different sort of Ben-Hur. These are not famous names. If I said, close your Bibles now and name me one name from the list other than Ben-Hur, I think you'd all struggle. These are not famous people. This is not Jesus and Moses, big names, but they're faithful people. And their unexciting faithfulness produced an impressive kingdom. See, they they did their part. They gathered their food, they oversaw their teams. And that led to Solomon's majestic kingdom. Yeah, he's the king, he's the big name. But unexciting faithfulness, that's what leads to this impressive kingdom. Well, that's just good for you and I to remember, because the same is true in Jesus' kingdom, visible today in his church. Unexciting faithfulness produces Jesus' kingdom. No one's going to write a book about the crash helpers at CCM or make a film about them. But most of us are very grateful for the work they're doing so we can actually hear one another right now. No one is going to write songs about 
those who serve international cafe on a Friday night, those who serve home, food to homeless on a Sunday night, those who commit faithfully to look after other people, those who work amongst traffic women in Shepherd's Market. No one's going to write movies about these people. But is the unexciting faithfulness that makes Jesus' king, Jesus's kingdom work? The role that everyone plays. Not famous, these names, but the Lord knows their names. And he knows the names of everyone who serves in an unexcitingly faithful way. So it matters, wisdom. Wisdom is very practical. Second little thing, uh, verses 20 to 28. Let's pick up from there. And so wisdom is joyful. That's very much the tone of these verses. Wisdom is joyful. So verse 20, this is a happy kingdom under Solomon. Verse 21, it's an extensive kingdom geographically. From the river to the land of the Philistines, as far as the border of Egypt, is a big empire of a kingdom. So it's happy, it's extensive. Verse 22, it's, how do you phrase it, a bounteous kingdom. You might want to call it that way. Solomon's daily provisions were 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal, 10 head of cattle, and on and on it goes. And um, I think the point the author is saying, get a load of this. Get a load of how many people he was feeding. It's extraordinary. You've got battery cattle, verse 23. You've got free-range cattle. Someone was bored enough to do a little sum and reckons this is sort of food for 5,000 people a day. The author's saying, this is a wealthy bloke who throws and dispenses his largesse upon loads of people. Get a load of the wealth of this man. Amazing, is what the author is saying here. It's a bounteous kingdom. So it's a happy, extensive, bounteous. Verse 24, there's peace. He ruled over all the kingdoms, dot, dot, dot. And there was peace on all sides. And verse 25, contentment. During Solomon's lifetime, Judah, Israel, Dan, to Bathsheba, they all lived in safety, each man under his own vine and fig tree. Now, you might not get excited by a vine and a fig tree, but it's, a, it's, it's Bible idiom for contentment. It's a little bit like saying everyone had a roof over their heads and food in their bellies and love in the home. All I want is a roof over my head and food in my stomach, tummy and love in the home. That sort of idiom, it comes up numerous times in the Bible. All is well when these things are in place. There's contentment. Who's content? Everyone is content. By the end, you get to verses 27 and 28. Even the horses are happy. Even the horses have got everything they need. That's what he's saying. The people are happy, the men are happy, the women are happy, the, the, the priests are happy, the, the, the workers in the fields are happy, even the horses, look at them, and it's like a Disney film, and the horses sort of smile, and everyone's happy, everyone's flourishing. Now again, what are you and I meant to do with this? Well, it's worth noticing, God had promised this, and it is his gift so I started to scribble it on a slide uh, for you. But the, the, the writer is picking up on numerous references. So verse 20, all these people, there's so many people, they're like the sand on the seashore. Well, no surprise, because Genesis 22, God had said to Abraham, I will surely bless you, make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. 
God had promised this. The place, this big empire, well, again, God had said to Abraham, Genesis 15, to your descendants I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates. Or peace, sorry, I ran out of, I didn't make it onto the slide, but peace as well, the peace that's promised in verse 24. Again, 2 Samuel 7, God says to David, I'll provide a place for my people Israel, I'll plant them so they can no longer be disturbed. I'll give you rest, peace from your enemies. So the writer here in 1 Kings 4, you say, oh, it's great, everything is brilliant. And you notice I'm saying it's all those things that God promised before, they've now all come true. They've all come true. Why do the people get to live in such a place of pleasure, such, a, such luxury? It's not their own brilliance. It's because God gave them a wise king. All that they're enjoying here is a gift from the Lord to them. This happy kingdom is a gift from the generous God. And again, I'd want to say in that, it's a picture of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Happy, extensive, bounteous, contentment. But of course, it's really to ask, easy to ask. Yes, it doesn't feel quite that way now. I don't see smiling horses. I don't see everyone enjoying plenty and peace. I don't see it all. No, of course not. But the Bible is very clear. There is a now and a then to Christianity. There's a now that we live in. A now that exists since Jesus came the first time and died and rose again. And you can join his kingdom now and it's good. In fact, it's wonderful. But then, then when he returns, then you see it in fulfillment then physically this world looks like it does here in 1 Kings 4. That description we had read in Revelation 21, that's then, that's the future. But so you see it now in part. And actually when a church functions well, it is a place of happiness, food and drink. No, but happiness, joy, peace, bounty. You see those things in part. And people recognize that. Here's an interesting article. This was in the Guardian newspaper last week, which is not generally sympathetic, I guess you'd say, to evangelical Christianity. But here's one man recognizing that it can be really good. So George Monbiot uh, wrote this last week. The model for a left-wing resurgence is evangelical Christianity. That is a very surprising headline, I'd suggest to you. Let me just quote you a little bit of it. He says this, uh, I share none of the core beliefs of evangelical Christians. Yes, I could have guessed that. Um, but I recognize in their work a series of brilliant organizational models. Okay, Many of the members are prepared to devote with apparent joy, limitless persistence, all of their free hours to the cause of Jesus Christ. They persist year after year. They'll weather almost any humiliation and rebuff in their attempts to reach apathetic, hostile people, and they sometimes succeed. In some places, I think of Brazil in particular, Christians have transformed the life of the nation in a way I find very disconcerting. He goes on to say, so I've started to study this. What is it that they do so well? 
these Christians that I disagree with on every, reason, on every sort of intellectual level? Well, there are a number of things. One, evangelical groups unite around a set of core convictions, and we in the labor movement should do the same. Evangelical Christians think they have good news to share with people, and we in the labor movement should do the same. And this is, this is what you see how his logic goes. Evangelical Christians, they welcome everyone. In particular, they welcome people who aren't converted. Instead of anathematizing people who have doubt and uh, hesitation and skepticism, they welcome them. That's three. Four, they're self-funding, often through a tithing system. They sometimes create a parallel welfare state, helping people to overcome financial hardship. Five, they often have charismatic leaders. Well, I'm sorry about that. You can't have everything. This is a striking article. Do you see what he says there? Look, I, I disagree with all of the convictions of those Christians, those evangelical Christians, and yet I look upon their movement, and they have joy, persistence. They're united. They share their bounty. It's extraordinary. We should do the same. Of course, he's missing the point. The reason people do that is because, because they love Jesus. Uh, and I don't suppose Jeremy Corbyn will ever quite generate the same amount of love, forgive me. Isn't that striking? You see it in part now. Or here's, look, I was given this in the week. Here's a card from someone at church. Some of you work out, it's not hard to work out who it is. Um, sent by a, a young woman uh, whose family have cut her off because culturally they can't accept the man she chose to marry. So no parents no siblings of hers at their wedding. Words simply can't describe how grateful we are for the kindness and love of the church family towards us. We will always be so very thankful. We praise God for uh, the kindness of counsel we've had. Thank you for supporting us through the tough times. The truth is we needed honest and Christ-centered guidance, even when we didn't always want to hear it. We're thankful for the wisdom you gave us. Estranged from my blood family and rejected by parents as I am is hard, very hard. But being surrounded by our loving church family where all are accepted is an incredibly wonderful and loving place to be. Now, why do I read you those things or something like that? Of course we have so many flaws as a church, it's embarrassing. But we mustn't let those blind us to the fact that in many ways, when Jesus Christ gathers his people as a church, as he forms his kingdom, sometimes we just forget it really is a wonderful thing. It really is a place where you know joy and peace and support and bounty. You do know these things, even in the here and now. And yet, and yet, what we know now, they're only hints. They are only hints of being in Jesus' kingdom. A bit like, um, uh, you know, posh ice cream parlors. We don't have many in the UK because, you know, the weather isn't always good enough. But uh, posh ice cream parlors, you go and you say, oh, can I try a bit of these? And they just give you a little, they take a little stick and they give you a little stick's worth. And you go, mm, that's delicious. Can I try another one? No. Um, you know, they, they're willing to give you a little foretaste, but that's it. They're not going to give you 20 of them. And, you know, you get a little taste. And if you like it, you buy the whole thing and um, feel, oh, that was good. The, um, just a foretaste. And that's 
what we have now in the church, just a foretaste. Again, Revelation 21 will tell us that then, then is when the kingdom is happy, joyful, plentiful, bounteous, and so on. Wisdom is joyful. We know it in part now. We'll know it fully then. Last thing, last thing briefly. Wisdom will be compelling. These last few verses, 29 to 34. Wisdom will be compelling. Now, there's lots here, I guess, on the comprehensive nature of Solomon's wisdom. Yes, he's a botanist, zoologist, poet, philosopher. God delights in everything in this world. It's, it's a wonderful world, which is good to explore and categorize. Yeah, all that's true. That's true. But the focus here is, I think, on just how compelling Solomon's wisdom is for others. So verse 31, he was wiser than any other man, including Ethan. Wiser than Ethan. Amazing. Wiser than He-Man, not the old one, Calcol Dada. But the point is, his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. And verse 34, men of all nations came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, sent by all the kings of the world who'd heard of this wisdom. Wisdom is compelling. Again, there's a now and a then to this. Some people will see wisdom in the rule of Jesus Christ now. George Monbiot sees some of that now. He sees that actually the way Christians live is very impressive, just dislikes why they do it. But some will see some wisdom now, but we've got to be realistic. Not all will recognize the wisdom of Jesus Christ because his wisdom is defined by sacrifice. Supremely, when we get to the New Testament, the wisdom of Jesus Christ is defined by sacrifice. And that won't please people. And people won't recognize. You have to trust in his sacrifice for you to enjoy the benefits of being in his kingdom. And sometimes you only see sacrifice as wise when you know you benefit from it. Let me try and explain. Did you read about uh, uh, earlier in the year, May, I think it was, Dan Price. Dan Price is a CEO of a Seattle-based tech company, uh, which he set up 12 years ago, Gravity Payments, very successful uh, processing, sort of PayPal type thing, uh, and he made himself a lot of money. In uh, April of this year, he announced he was going to raise the salary of all of his staff, so 120 employed by Gravity Payments, he was going to raise the salary of all of them to a minimum of $70,000, whatever, 46, 7,000 pounds. And he would pay for this by cutting his own salary by 90%. Now, that is unusual. His peers, other CEOs, weren't thrilled with him because of the precedent that that might have set he took quite a lot of stick. Why are you doing that? Guess who was delighted with that statement and that decision? Yes, of course, his employees. And it's on YouTube in a slightly sort of self-promoting way. He recorded this announcement and all the staff going, oh, we love you. But anyway, there we go. It's still a very, um, very noble thing to do in many ways. But that is extraordinary in a culture where many of his peers as CEOs would earn 300 times on average what their 
employees, average employee earns. For a salary to cut, for a CEO to cut his salary like that is pretty radical. He somewhat understatedly said, I think I'll have to scale back my spending a little bit. Yeah, oh, I think you probably would. A 90% pay cut would uh, hit most people. Okay, his staff did not view that as wisdom. His employees loved him for it. And in a similar sort of way, when Jesus Christ gives up the throne of heaven and came and died an appalling death, when he took upon himself shame and guilt that you and I have for how we treat God and treat others, and he gave up glory and riches so that we could have that, when he swapped places with us upon the cross, many look upon that and think, that's ridiculous. What a stupid thing to do. But those of us who know, who've trusted Jesus and know we benefit from it, we love him. We love him. Because we see the wisdom defined in sacrifice for us is an extraordinary thing. That's now. Jesus doesn't enforce his reign now. He doesn't make anyone follow him. He doesn't coerce it in any way. Since often, as we look around this world, it isn't obvious that this is a world that Jesus is king over. Of his church, yes, but it's not obvious. But again, that's now. Then, then it will be obvious when he returns. One day Jesus will return to reign in this world. And it will be irresistibly compelling when he does so. That's when those who follow him will experience in full joy, happiness, the extensiveness of his kingdom, the bounty of his kingdom, the peace of his kingdom. That's when we'll know those things fully. That's when we'll say to one another, get a load of that. Look at the extravagance here. And we get to enjoy it. Hey, that's when we'll enjoy those things in full. That's then. As Charlie read at the beginning of the service, Matthew 8, Jesus says, Oh, many will come from the east and the west, from all parts and all nations of this planet, and join me at the feast in the kingdom of heaven. Revelation 21, people will come. The kings of the earth will bring their splendor into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. When he returns, it will be a reign of true and eternal joy. That's then we'll see him, we'll be with him, we'll listen to him. And then if we ever doubt, if we ever doubted it here on this earth, we will know being under the reign of wise King Jesus is the most wonderful place to be. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, we want to give you thanks for this strange chapter with its little quirks and details as it helps us understand how good the kingdom of Jesus is, how wonderful it is to be under his rule even now. There are great benefits to that, but how extravagant his kingdom will be then when he returns and recreates this world with perfect joy and peace, and plenty. So Father, we pray that we would 
trust him here and now for the first time or ongoingly and look forward to being with him then. Pray in his great name. Amen.